I just hope that as the second voting takes place tonight, if there is a if there is a second term, if the liberal center cannot hold and mere trumpery is loosed upon the world, I just hope that we tune in or tune out to the political life in some way and remain all of us interested in great literature. If the liberal censor can't hold, Carl, here's my plan. I'm going to go out, find the biggest Greek sandwich I can find, drown my sorrows in the widening gyro. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. to the readers Karamazov. We are your hosts, the bastard sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. And I am Soren Rearguard. We're back for the third time and we are joined as always in absentia in Agata de Vida by our third host, Friedrich Peachy. He wanted to be here tonight, friends. He's been going around the streets, wandering around, shouting out various maxims of philosophy seeing if he can find anybody who's willing to yell the same maxims back to him so that he might make a friend. Yes, he is looking for an echo, homie. Without success, oh, so, oh. Without, without success so far, but we will hopefully be joined by him in a very soon future date. Meanwhile, we're back. It is hot in here. It is election night in America, uh, possibly in Russia as well, where our overlords... <laughs> are waiting. How are you feeling, Carl? We are here to make sure that the people don't care about the election for five minutes, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully more than five minutes. Hopefully uh, an hour. Yeah, for about an hour. But, you know. By the time you listen to this, it will be, well, we hope it will be over. Maybe they'll still still be counting. Whether you're in your bunker or not, there will be some relevance, hopefully some longer in the sense of the the long array of time there will be some relevance to this hopefully more so than the anxiety inducing night of election 2020 who knows better about despair than the russians right uh mm-hmm. despair and vodka that's all you need to make it through tonight so we're going to be here uh recording throughout we're not going to give you election updates because by the time you hear it it'll be useless we're here distracting ourselves uh, and hopefully we'll distract you a little bit from the state of the world when you listen to this as well um so so tonight we're going to talk about part three of the brothers karamazov we're almost done with our marathon we've d- talked about part one in our very first episode, part two, we talked about in our second episode, we did our patrons only episode on the Grand Inquisitor. That's right. Go become a patron, patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov for that delightful episode. You're going to be getting a lot more bonus content in the near future if you signed up for that. Maybe we'll talk about that briefly at the end of the episode tonight. But now we're back with part three and we're going to talk a lot about Dimitri tonight, a a person we haven't talked about so much, the neglected Karamazov brother so far in our story, and along with some other stuff as well. So why don't we dive into it, Carl? The big event of part three that starts us, that Soren alluded to in our first episode, we can now officially say... The crime, the crime has been committed. The parricide or the patricide, as it's <laughs> as it's spoken of yes. in the novel, Fyodor Karamazov, the black guard father, the most vile and base of them all, was murdered. And there are, is one clear suspect by the end of part three. Yes. And that's Dimitri. Before we get there, we get some interesting, we get some interesting interludes, right? We, we have a very, in some ways, this is the most dialogic from a storytelling point of view section of the Brothers Karamazov because we're weaving back, well, not really weaving back and forth, but we're alternating between Alyosha's story and Dimitri's story. And then sort of the third person omniscient narrator's story of how we get to land on Dimitri as our prime suspect here in the murder of his own father. So in the beginning of uh, part three, we get this very interesting section. We, at the end of part two, we've had 
the last sort of the last words of Father Jojima, the, the elder monk who has been mentoring Alyosha, the youngest Karamazov brother who wants to become a, an Orthodox monk. And at the very end of that, he dies. And then we pick up in part three with a very odd problem. <laughs> um, it's not something that you and I can, well, it's something that I can relate to on a daily basis, but. Oh, uh, but Stuart, but, I know you're going to go somewhere dark with this. <laughs> dark and, and very, uh, yes, malodorous. Basically the, the setup here is this, and this seems a little bit strange probably to the modern reader, but maybe we can dive a little bit into it and, and try to figure out what's going on. So Zojima dies and Basically, everybody expects, because he's been such a holy guy, that the minute he dies, they're going to start getting miracles performed out of the body. And then also, there's going to be a preservation of the body. And this is a pretty big thing in um, Christian tradition. If you have a, a particularly holy person, a person who's going to become a saint very quickly, you may have an incorruptibility of the body. And everybody seems to be expecting that. The problem is that Jojima's body doesn't do that. In fact, it does the reverse. It's this very like it's very Adam Sandler-esque, like who farted in here. Almost immediately the smell is just overpowered. Not even like a normal dead body smell. It's like an overpowering smell. And everybody's like, mm-hmm. and then his opponent Father Joshua's opponents in the monastery, of which there are a fair few, including Father Farapont the ascetic, start to go, aha! Clearly he was not a holy man after all. He's rotting away. And uh, this distresses Alyosha greatly. So he ends up leaving the monastery. He, and he goes and meets with Grushenka, Dmitri's want-to-be fiance, this sort of low woman in town. He goes and meets with her for a little bit. They have some interesting conversations that we'll get back to in just a minute. And then he ends up coming back to the monastery. Here's a sermon from Father Paisi, who's Father Jojima's disciple and is supposed to be the one who's now mentoring Alyosha. And at the end of that, he ends up leaving the monastery. And that's where we leave. Alyosha in this part. He's kind of not really sure what to do with his life at this point, and he's left the monastery. Although, to be clear, he was told to leave the monastery by Father Jojima before before Father Jojima died, but now he's feeling, he's left, and he's feeling a great amount of distress about this. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Then, do you want to talk a little bit about what what Dimitri's been up to? Yeah, and then so uh, in the third arc of this third part, we get sort of Dimitri's story, and it's essentially a bender, and a attempted murder that he admits to, followed by the revelation of his father's murder. And he being the prime suspect is taken in for questioning and then taken away to sort of be held before trial. Before that, we get this very interesting section. I, have you seen, I have not seen this film, so you're going to have to film me enough. I'm accurate about this. The film Uncut Gems. Yes. Film. Okay. Does this strike you as being like an uncut gems t- type situation? Where Ooh, he, that's a great question. Uh, where he is my, bringing it all the way around with Adam Sandler. I know. It's, it's but the good is, at like the the new Adam Sandler, the serious the redeemed, Adam Sandler, the redeemed Adam Sandler. <laughs> no. So what's going on is Dimitri is desperately trying to find enough money to pay back his actual fiance Katarina Ivanova to be able to basically get rid of her once and for all. He's going around to all these different people. He keeps getting kind of tricked. People are like, ha I'll tell you where you can get some money. And then he, he finds out, oh, you can't actually get it there. And then he ends up finding some money. But instead of giving it to Katerina Ivanovna, he decides to blow it all on a big party because Grushenka, the woman he wants to marry, has gone away to meet with her old lover, who's an, a Polish army officer who had wooed her when she was a younger woman, left her, got married. His wife died. Now he's back in town. He's the big intimidating figure or so it seems and so dimitri goes to to meet them in another town and takes all this money with him and is just blowing it on champagne and caviar and hot chocolate all these wonderful luxuries and then they hang out together in this depressingly awkward scene in a tavern it's almost like the office episode the dinner party right just absolute cringe absolute cringe hanging out because the the polish guy who's supposed to be this big wonderful lover is actually this like short bald fat guy who's really rude um and only wants to talk in polish not russian and he's really bored with everything he's just sort of sitting around like oh what's going on and everybody else hates that they say you're lame you suck and dimitri becomes the life of the party and is, is throwing money around everywhere and then at the end of this they have this huge all-night bender and then at the end yes the police come and arrest him because in the night 
Fyodor Karamazov has been murdered in his bed or in his, in his room. And the prime suspect is Dmitri, who was on the grounds, had the motive, had a weapon. And magically got enough money for this bender. No one and knows where the money this... came from. And exactly. admits that he was there and admits that he almost murdered Grigory and was convinced that he had murdered Grigory. The um, servant, yeah. The oh, servant. Himself, yeah. Um, but Grigory survives, but Dimitri didn't know that. And so his plan was to blow all of his money in this final bender and then kill himself at dawn. So he gets interrogated over the, the last part of, of part three and things don't look good for him. He, he has some defenses to make, but they don't seem very convincing. So that's, that's where we leave off at the end of part three. The thing's not looking particularly good for poor Dimitri. So I think our strategy today, Carl, is to talk about the three sort of centering characters of, of part three. We're going to talk some more about Alyosha. He's been there with us, but we're seeing some changes in him. And then we're going to talk about Grushenka, who really is in a lot of ways the hinge of this part because she very physically, literally connects Alyosha and Dmitri, who don't meet in this part uh, with each other, but they both meet with Grushenka. And her viewpoint is, and her motivations and her fears and hopes are, are, are very interesting. We get them to a great degree here, which is nice because Dostoevsky is not, like a lot of men, he's not the greatest at writing in women into his books. And for the most part in The Brothers Karamazov, he seems mostly content to hang out with the dudes. But Grushenka really is a fascinating and very richly developed, at least in this part, character in the book. We want to talk about her and give her her due. And then we're going to talk about Dimitri, who is the wild card, cutting the brakes on everybody's narrative momentum. So we've got to and, talk about and, him as well. And to go back to what you asked before, I would say that he's not uh, really in line with the uncut gems. Okay. The guy. I would say they're they're pretty different characters even though the the plot similarities are definitely there but their motives and their what it is they're trying to do and to get back i guess seems a little bit different and differently motivated i would say though it's a great movie and the the safety brothers are excellent at like a night a nail-biting thriller which dostoevsky is i don't i don't know i felt like a nail-biting sense at all in this part three Tune into a future Patreon episode where we'll talk about Uncut Gems. Let's start talking about, we'll, we'll start with Alyosha. We'll go in sort of chronological order here and talk, talk about the different sections. Um, what do you make of the section, An Odor of Corruption, and then his, his movement around to Grushenka's house and then back again? What are we getting, what are we learning about Alyosha as a character and sort of the orthodox world around him? I love this section because it's an amazing, again, Dostoevsky sort of walking one way with his left foot and the other way with his right foot immediately after we get all of these it seems like the book is centered on Joshima's philosophy we see that not just his you know body is corrupted but his philosophy his raison d'etre is is corrupted as well because his body corrupts and we see the other monks begin to turn and the the power vacuum sort of start to swirl and suddenly all the other monks are doing a great job of coalescing around an alternative philosophy and an alternative take on Joshima's whole life because his body has this odor of corruption. And it's fascinating. We talked about this a good bit last time with Father Fair upon his main opponent, but they really do seem like strikingly different views of what the monastic life should be. Father Fairpont is very ascetic. He's very interested in cutting himself off from the world, in pursuing a very sort of rigid holiness and not leaving his cell, eating very little, all these things. And Father Jojima, while he's not a he's not a glutton or anything like that, his main concern, at least as we've seen it in the book, has been being with the people, being out and healing people or offering words of hope to people who come to him, especially as sort of the poor peasants who come to him. And so you sort of have a, you have a very different vision of what it means to live in the world as someone set apart as a monk, right? Are you going to be set apart in the sense of being completely isolated? Or are you going to be set apart in the sense of being the leaven that works, the yeast that works in the dough of the world, which is what Jojima seems to, to view things, uh, his role as. And we get all these sort of whispers about what has happened to his body and how this proves something 
antithetical to what he taught. So we get, he taught unrighteousness. He taught that life is great joy and not tearful humility. And, you know, the implication is because of that, his body is corrupted and his words are not true. And others said, you know, he held fashionable beliefs and he did not accept the material fire of hell. And so the picture is portrayed of Joshima as perhaps less interested in dogma, less interested in adherence to rule following, and more about motivation and openness and kindness that cares a lot less about outcomes in terms of the afterlife or in terms of, you know, what is or isn't the greatest sin or the worst flaw or the worst mark of a flaw in a person. And the opposite tack is taken now. Um, people see this as a sign that that whole worldview might need to be called into question. And I think Dostoevsky gives serious time to the other side of things. And I think we'll get a little bit of that later, especially with what happens to Dimitri, because all of, all of this, you know, these minor quibbles about, you know, what is the correct dogma? What is the correct interpretation? Those play out not necessarily in biblical exegesis, but in, in legal application later. Mm -hmm. These very minute differences about what is guilt and what is just and, and right kind of penalty for wrongdoing that perhaps Joshima is not very good at. The novel really is invested in figuring out where some lines can be drawn there. Absolutely. And it's interestingly invested in the question of authority as well, because in particular, what the other monks are saying is that the office of elder, which is a relatively recent innovation in the monasteries, apparently, which Father Jojima was, who's an elder, is in itself a corrupt practice. And it seems to be tied to the idea that if you have this elder system where it's essentially, a, we might call like a discipleship model, where he is discipling these younger monks or novices, is somehow more dangerous than a model where the monks are maybe a little bit more cut off from each other. And uh, certainly with Father Farapon, he wants to be isolated. And it's more about maybe following the strict rule of the monastery than it is about growth through discipleship or something, which is what Jojima apparently wants to do. And you see that with Father Paisy as well, who be starts to become a very interesting figure here. Father Paisy, the man who is the sort of successor to Father Jojima, who's now finding himself in a pretty bad place, an, a tenuous place because he picked the, the wrong horse in this race, <laughs> apparently. But he, his main concern here is with being that new father to Alyosha. He has this, these wonderfully tender moments where he's looking at Alyosha in distress and deeply caring for him. And he says he was surprised at how much he cared for Alyosha's well-being in the midst of this. And so we, we have this alternate viewpoint of it that the, 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 the best way to live out your holiness might be to do so in the context of a relationship with another person rather than by yourself. That seems to be at stake here too, all this swirling around. I want to talk a little bit about, um, I want us to, to, to go to a passage here near the beginning of part three that talks about Alyosha's faith, because it's very interesting. What happens is that Alyosha becomes very distressed at Father Jojuma's the, the sort of the odor of corruption and everything. And the easy inference to make is to say that he's losing his faith. That's the easy read on it, right? Your mentor died. You were really wrapped up in him. His body started corrupting. Uh-oh, that must mean there's nothing here for you, right? You, you picked the wrong thing. But that's not what Alyosha is, says is happening. He says, in fact, quite the opposite. So this is a conversation that he has with Father Paisy. To the rueful question Father Paisy addressed to Alyosha, or are you too with those of little faith? I could, this is the narrator, I could, of course, answer firmly for Alyosha. No, he is not with those of little faith. Moreover, it was even quite the opposite. All his dismay arose precisely because his faith was so great. But dismay there was, it did arise, and it was so tormenting that even later, long afterwards, Alyosha considered this rueful day one of the most painful and fatal days of his life. And then a little bit later, 
the narrator continues to say this. I will say this much. It was not a matter of miracles. It was not an expectation of miracles, frivolous in its impatience. Alyosha did not need miracles then for the triumph of certain convictions. It was not that at all, nor so that some sort of former preconceived idea would quickly triumph over another. Oh no, by no means. In all this and above all else in the first place, there stood before him the person and only the person, the person of his beloved elder, the person of that righteous man whom he revered to the point of adoration. That was just it, that the entirety of the love for all and all that lay hidden in his young and pure heart then and during the whole previous year was at times as if wholly concentrated, perhaps even incorrectly, mainly on just one being, at least in the strongest impulses of his heart, on his beloved elder, now deceased. Again, it was not miracles he needed, but only a higher justice, which as he believed had been violated. It was this that wounded his heart so cruelly and suddenly. Yeah, I love that passage. And, and just a little bit later, um, the part I, I was uh, gonna highlight as well, but it was justice, justice he thirsted for, not simply miracles. And I, I love this, these two criticisms of perhaps what you could call a sort of mere faith or a first take on what faith might appear to be or might people might suggest that it simply is, which is, you know, the most seriously faithful person is the one who has no qualms, is never upset, is sort of always at equanimity with their, <laughs> with their future or their life. And then also one who is looking for miraculous signs in the world. And for Dostoevsky, those two tenets um, are false. His hero will have a sort of faith that is not looking for a miracle or if something perhaps at the edge of the natural or into the supernatural, it's something concerned with this higher justice that he's speaking of. And then it will also be a person who's ready to really rack themselves about their convictions their convictions at the deepest level will be something that are sort of existentially difficult to fully grasp or fully enact in the world because they are, you know, a, a quite serious calling or a rather difficult task to perform. And this, you know, can cut again across many religions or someone with no uh, sort of religious bent because, you know, everyone has a faith in something, you know, whether it's themselves or their future, or if you have goals in life, you have some means by which you put some faith in something to try and get them, whether it's yourself or a certain worldview. At least I think that's sort of something we could maybe loosely agree on. But Elias is kind of setting out right here to go this, this second harder route, this deeper route that Dostoevsky is interested in portraying. It's a serious question for him because he has lived so much of his life over the past few years tied to this philosophy of Zhojima's. And what he's crying out against here is the injustice. It's not that there were no miracles. He doesn't need the miracles to remind him that Zhojima was a great man. It's the injustice, really, that other people now will speak badly of Jojima in his death because this happened. Like, why couldn't it have just been normal, right? Why did it? Because it's it's above and beyond. It's and I really do think I was laughing about this earlier, but I do think this is a a somewhat darkly comic situation, not so much for the smell, but for the situation of this being clearly someone who's been presented as a very holy man, it's not just that his body's starting to decay. Okay, we can understand that. That is what happens to most bodies. But it's this offensive, terrible, overwhelming corruption that seems to be happening to his body that everybody is taking for a, a sign that strikes Salyoshi as incredibly unjust. And that's what's bothering him. And it tortures him precisely because he hasn't stopped believing in Jojima. It would be easier if he could say, well, I guess that guy was a fraud. I'll move on now. And he could let go of it. But it's the, this attachment and this conviction that he's still correct about this that doesn't seem to match up with the outer evidence that's so torturing to him. Um, and the doubts of all of the other monks seem to, at least in this situation, negate 
Zhoshima's worldview that it's best to, to sort of suffer and be guilty before all. They are ridiculing that and ridiculing him. And in the moment, it seems like this worldview has, has no higher justice, right? Yeah. It, there's no way that it really pays out in the world and helps people. And he's extremely fraught about that. What's fascinating to me then out of coming out of this is that as the narrator sees it, and he's sort of giving us a hint forward, what's going on inside of Alyosha is the need to extract Father Jojima's example and his life and detach it from Father Jojima himself and take it out into the world. He says very pointedly in this passage, the philosophy of all in all that he had attached so particularly to one man, Father Jojima. And so you have that paradox and, it, and really it is the ladder of ascent in Plato's symposium, right? You start out, how do you start out? You start out by loving one body and then you move on to sort of all bodies and then you love a mind and then you love all minds and you keep kind of keep climbing up. It's almost that sort of vision there, right? He, there's an irony in the fact that Alyosha has learned about this superabundant charity or love that is the heart of the Christian message, according to Jojima. But he's learned about it through essentially hero worshiping one person, Jojima, right? His love hasn't had a chance to overflow those boundaries yet. And so, though he's had hints of it, certainly, right? We get a hint of it in him dealing with Ilyushka, the little schoolboy who bites him earlier on, right? And, and hints of it in his dealings with his family, certainly. But in a sense, this is a blessing to him, like a salutary wound to him to be forced to go out into the world by his own emotions and deal with the world because remaining there would keep him in that sort of locked state. He wouldn't be growing and developing in that love if it were to remain entirely wrapped up in the person of Father Jojima. Yeah, I think in general, that's maybe one of our biggest um, differences is reading this passage, uh, you read it comically, I perhaps read it tragically, because I didn't, I didn't get that like affect or that form from this moment. I do think that like the narrator kind of very quickly lets Alyosha get some respite from this horrible feeling that he has with the onion episode. I think he gets his sort of higher justice really quickly with, <laughs> with this, the parable of the onion that, that's sort of coming up next. But I do think in this moment, it's like, he really has no confirmation or way sort of out of this like morass of faith, the courage to despair or something. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the onion. There's lots of layers here to unpack. <laughs> it's uh, where he finds his um, confirmation of the he who smelt it, dealt it philosophy. <laughs> oh man. Uh, we'll see if we get to the root of this parable. So he leaves the monastery and he meets up with this guy, Rakuten, who has shown up before, and now he's back again. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Rakuten, but he is a kind of interesting character. He connects, in my mind, to the figure of Musaf from part one, in that he seems to be this character without any real convictions in life. What I've described before as the sort of 19th century liberal uh, view on the world, but maybe turned even more cynically than Musaf, because Musaf, at least, seems to have some idea that he's interested in the progress of mankind or something like that, something grandiose. Rakuten is that, minus all those more grandiose ambitions, he really just wants to see what he can get out of life for himself. Or he's described as always being, always kind of wheeling and dealing only for his own benefit. And in fact, he takes Alyosha to Grushenka's house specifically because he wants to see, well, he wants to get money from Grushenka because Grushenka asked him to bring Alyosha to her. So he wants money, but then he also wants to see Alyosha get embarrassed because he's going to take her, he's going to take him to Grushenka. The idea being Grushenka is going to seduce Alyosha and take his, his innocence from him. And then Rakuten can sit back and laugh, right? And get this sort of sick satisfaction out of it. That's not the way things end up though. They end up at Grushenka's and Grushenka and Alyosha basically end up ignoring Rakuten the whole time. And they just talk to each other and Grushenka seems to want to pour her heart out to Alyosha in large measure. And, and they end up talking and they end up with her telling him this really fascinating parable of the onion. So you want to tell us about that, Carl? What's the parable of the onion? We, we should also say too that Rakuten is doing this for money. And he's really embarrassed when Grushenka just outs him and says, 
you know, I was going to give you money for bringing Alyosha to me. And now right. I'm not going to, because you're, you're annoying me. Um, right. And, and it's like, you know, it was clearly part of their deal that that would not be mentioned in Alyosha's presence. So he would keep his honor. And there's, you know, there's like a Judas parallel here too, um, mm-hmm. in this aspect of the story. Yeah. He wants the money, but he doesn't want to be seen to be the sort of person who wants the money. Exactly. Maybe I should read it. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and read it to us? You see, Alyosheka Kershenka turned to him, laughing nervously. I'm boasting to Rakitka that I gave an onion, but I'm not boasting to you. I'll tell you about it for a different reason. It's just a fable, but a good fable. I heard it when I was still a child from my Matranya, who cooks for me now. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a woman, and she was wicked as wicked could be, and she died. But not one good deed was left behind her. The devils took her and threw her into the lake of fire. And her guardian angel stood thinking, what good deed of hers can I remember to tell God? Then he remembered and said to God, once she pulled up an onion and gave it to a beggar woman. And God answered, now take that same onion, hold it out to her in the lake. Let her take hold of it and pull. And if you pull her out of the lake, she can go to paradise. But if the onion breaks, she can stay where she is. The angel ran to the woman and held out the onion to her. Here, woman, he said, take hold of it and I'll pull. And he began pulling carefully and had almost pulled her all the way out when other sinners in the lake saw her being pulled out and all began holding onto her so as to be pulled out with her. But the woman was wicked as wicked could be and she began to kick them with her feet. It's me who's getting pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. No sooner did she say it than the onion broke and the woman fell back into the lake and is burning there to this day. And the angel wept and went away. That's the fable, Alyosha. I know it by heart because I myself am that wicked woman. I boasted to Rakitin that I gave an onion, but I'll say it differently to you. In my whole life, I've given just one little onion and that's how much good I've done. And don't praise me after that, Alyosha. Don't think I'm good. I'm wicked, wicked as can be. And if you praise me, you'll make me ashamed. Ah, uh, let me confess everything. Listen, Alyosha, I wanted so much to lure you here and pestered Rakitin so much that I even promised him 25 rubles if he'd bring you to me. And then she's like, no, wait, Rakita. And then he gets mad. And the sort of, the jig is up. Why do so you think that, why do you think that she's telling this, this fable here? So it, it relates to things we've discussed before about, you know, baseness and vileness and Karamazovness and a sort of allure of one's own worst character. Because part of the reason Grushenka tells the parable is that she's almost proud of the fact that this is her in a way that's, you know, clearly harmful to herself. She knows that she harms herself and she makes that a point of pride. And that's kind of an interesting element of human behavior that Dostoevsky is always picking up on and always pointing people to. This is extremely prevalent in the way people behave. They often take their shame and make a model of it for others. And it also shows she still kind of has this desire in that modeling of her shame to do more than just have had one good deed. She she says it as an elaborate way of saying I did something wicked in trying to bring you here and it doesn't count as good. I can see that it doesn't count as good to stop doing this wicked thing. I didn't set out to do an actual good thing, but I did stop doing a bad thing. People want some points for that, but there's there's an irony in that you only get the points of the old woman, right? Because what you are stopping that's bad because you did not go out intending to do good, that will come back to bite you if you continue to act that way. And that's what happens to the old woman. She did enough good to get a second chance, but not enough good that when the time comes, she will remain good. She hasn't practiced it. She needs a whole bag of onions, not just one. (laughs) That could bear some more weight. Is it time for Carl's Corner? Sure, why not? Okay, gonna launch onto one of our special features here on the pod, which is Carl's Corner. And Carl's gonna come on and do a little solo act and zoom in on one particular aspect of the text. And I'm going to let him take it away.
So today's Carl's Corner is very apropos to Grishenka, who, as Soren said, is in many ways a hinge to what happens in this book. And it's important to note that many of the characters, especially the, the male amorous characters, are interested in her. And so Fyodor and Dimitri are both interested in her. And the fact that she is between them is very important. And if you're interested in how in 19th century fiction, women are often portrayed as between men, then there's a great book, Eve Sedgwick's Between Men kind of examines this. So maybe check that out. But I'm interested too in the ways that Kushenka portrays her shame and revels a bit in her own shame. So I'll probably do a different Carl's Corner on the difference between guilt and shame, but just as a sort of rule of thumb, according to uh, Brene Brown, who's like a contemporary scholar of psychology and the emotions. Guilt is a sense that one has done wrong. You have been caught cheating. You are guilty. But shame is, is a heightened effect of calling out with respect to that guilt. If guilt is you have been caught cheating, shame is you are a dirty cheater. And with respect to Grishenka, going that extra level into reveling in her shame reminds me of a really important aspect of psychology, philosophy, literature, and that's this idea of the abject, which got, you know, it's real crystallization in the philosopher Julia Kristeva, who talks about Dostoevsky, more so the the possessed or the, the devils than Brothers Karamazov with respect to the abject. But I wonder what she would say, and I think she would perhaps apply the abject to Grushenka and the Brothers Karamazov as well. And so in her work, The Powers of Horror, she writes, the objection of self would be the culminating form of that experience of the subject to which it is revealed that all its objects are based merely on the inaugural loss that laid the foundations of its own being. There is nothing like the objection of self to show that all objection is in fact recognition of the want on which any being, meaning, language, or desire is founded. So as the critic Deborah Covino says in her critique of Julia Kristeva, the abject body repeatedly violates its own borders and disrupts the wish for physical self-control and social propriety. That's what really makes me think of Krushenka. We disavow our excretory bodies because they are signs of disorder, reminders of the body's ambiguous limits. It's leaking from multiple orifices and of its ultimate death. Such waste drops so that I might live until from loss to loss, nothing remains in me and my entire body falls beyond the limit. Cadere, cadaver. Kristeva's theory of abjection originates with their distinction between the somatic and the symbolic. Here, Kristeva claims that language is the outgrowth of certain drives and desires that are somehow pre-symbolic, or we might say pre-representational. These drives and desires are semiotic and their life exists in the place or space of the Kora. Kristeva adapts the concept of the Kora from Plato's Timaeus, a dialogue between Socrates and Timaeus about the nature of material existence, where the Kora is usually translated into English as a receptacle. And so this idea that Grushenka is the hinge upon which things play out aligns with this Kristevian idea of the Kora, that there is this abjectness and femaleness that is a receptacle for the events that take place, or in this case, you know, the different desires of the two men and the sort of fullness of these desires that symbolize the full Karamazovianness that the whole novel is interested in, fall back on who is object and why are they object. If they're object for looking at Grushenka, they're also object in their wants and their desires. And it's not just Grushenka who is this object person, this low person. And the novel asks, in the central event, who killed the father? Why is it that this happened? Krushenka says, you know, I am guilty of it. I am the guiltiest one. And then Dimitri tries to, you know, take away that, that statement of guilt and say, you know, it wasn't her. It was me. I am the guiltiest. I am the one who's, been, who's done it. And when we think about, in the final case, who, in fact, did it, it's important to keep in mind that there's Krushenka, perhaps, Dimitri, and the third person who is sort of a suspect named in this third part is Smerdyakov. And each of them are described as abject in a certain way. 
so in detailing what in fact defines the object, Chris Deva gives one example of the kind of person who would stab a friend unwittingly. And so whoever the murderer ends up being, this idea of the abject must play out in who they are and the essence, though Chris Deva won't use that term, of what wanting is, what drives sort of, you know, human history is in some sense this wanting that everyone has, wanting something in life or out of life. And it's striking how central abjection is to that wanting. That's part of Kristeva's point. And I think ultimately that's part of Dostoevsky's point and the centrality of this onion parable to the rest of the novel. This has been Carl's Corner. Thank you, Carl. I would like to take this moment to remind the audience that the views of Carl and Carl's Corner are not necessarily the views <laughs> of the pod as a whole. And I would, at this opportunity, like to take the time, as Chico Marx would say, to register my objections to that section. Okay, thank you so much, Carl, for that. The last thing I want to say about The Onion is okay. that Grushenka, in her objection... And an objection to Rakuten says, hey, Rakuten, like, get it together. You should love for no reason like Alyosha. <laughs> and this is part of her understanding of why she says this parable and sort of loves and mourns the fact that she's the old woman in the parable. She cannot love for no reason. And the old mm -hmm. woman cannot love for no reason. And this is where I think the narrator has tipped us off. And we see... Alyosha kind of come out of this moment with Grushenka and he's very moved by the parable and he thinks that it's you know, his duty to give more than just one onion and he's only given one onion so far and as Soren was saying this is his sort of hero worship of Zoshima and in order to move on and to move up and to have a grander sense of love and to go beyond what I called mere faith he has to give many onions and there's sort of a reading of the wedding in Kingna that comes next. And I think what Dostoevsky is trying to say there is like the model of Jesus gives more than an onion. He turns water into wine. He gives freely and he loves with no reason. And so that is, that is your goal. And that's sort of Alyosha gets his higher justice there and he's, he's ready to move on. He's invigorated again. He's going yeah. to love with no reason. That's a fascinating example that Dostoevsky would put that particular reading from the Gospel of John in, in there, because it doesn't seem to immediately connect. But when you think about, I, I really like thinking about it in your terms, Carl, of that sort of abundance or excess of love for no good reason, because that's part of the point of the parable. Jesus is at this wedding. It's, he hasn't started his public ministry yet. And they run out of wine and his mom says, hey, Jesus, you know, and I can do this, makes more wine. And at first he kind of, he kind of resists. And then he, and then he says, no, no, do whatever she tells you to do. Because again, of that intercession on the part of a woman in this case, right? Again, you get this abundance, this, this excess, it doesn't have anything to do with his public ministry. It's not a part of his sort of witness to himself but he does it out, he does it primarily out of love for one person his mother but then the superabundance of it spills over to everyone involved at the wedding and everybody gets wine right the best wine right, right yeah and that's that's Dostoevsky's point and Kristeva's point too this abjection is very Karamazovian it cuts both ways it's why Alyosha and Dmitri are brothers um, hmm. not just for the sake of the plot but for the sake of what this Karamazovian-ness is this inability to do things just a little bit you're going all the way on this wild bender or with loving people for no reason that's kind of what the objection is can I ask you one quick question about Grushenka before we move on do you feel like by the end of this section she's given another onion 
but when she tries to take the blame of the murder onto herself, or is that just another example of abjection? Because I think there's maybe two ways to read that. One way to read that is as an example of abjection of trying to take shame that doesn't belong to you on yourself. But then there's another way to read that, which is she's starting to maybe learn about self-sacrificial love because maybe she's doing it for Dimitri's sake and not for her own sake. What, what is your take on that, Carl? I think it really has to be the both there. And I think later in this part, it becomes the sort of more positive abjection where she believes fully in Dimitri and she's she seems to have turned a corner and become a person willing to commit to something as opposed to taking whatever comes as the sort of most delightful and mm-hmm. inciting thing. And the important thing about the Cora or the abject is it's neither subject nor object. It is this sort of paradoxical doubling. So subject. <laughs> yes. So I think the reading that you gave there is, is great, that it is both. Okay. Well, let's turn and talk about Dimitri for, for a little bit as we wrap up. Since he does dominate the second half of this, of this third part, we get to know him a little bit more as a character. And we get, to, we get to begin to understand him, I think, as a character finally. Because in my mind, at least in the first part, certainly, he, does, he doesn't really show up in part two, but in part one, he's very difficult to understand. He's almost like pure id or something, right? He's just constantly acting out almost of, it, it seems like pure emotion and pure irascibility, right? He's constantly just lashing out at people and then immediately like regretting it, being moved to tears and all this sort of stuff. But here we begin to get some sense of what connection there is between, maybe we could say, to put it in a medieval way, the connection between his intellect and his will. What connection there is there, or if he is just pure will. What are some of the things that you noticed about Dimitri's character that are, that's being developed in this, this part of the book? Well, again, I think Dostoevsky is always great in his counterintuitive connections between things. So it might seem a bit of a left turn or something to go just in this Dimitri bender, but it's, it's notable that we go from Shoshima, sort of a clear moral center perhaps to the novel, and then he's an elder who dies then we have Theodore, who's the eldest, who dies. And then we move to Dimitri, who's the eldest brother. So these kind of like elders or eldests, leader figures in some way, perhaps that's like an unfair assumption to put on the eldests. But in general, those links are made to connect. And in the same way that Alyosha has turned in some way to understand his higher justice, the narrator is incredibly sly double entendre cuts across the languages here when we get that in his examination Dimitri then inspectors wonder if these things he's talking about do in fact make quote fatal differences and then he he remarks on himself and his changes he's gone through in this interrogation and his indictment and he's going to stand trial a blow is needed a blow of fate is needed at times you can think of his admitted blow on Grigory's head Or you can think of the only slightly different, but the intent was the same, perhaps, blow of fate on Theodore's head, which killed him. And Dostoevsky wants you to put you right on that line between, and there's, you know, there's some great philosophical concepts to think about here, like moral luck is an important one. Uh, And I think one that you can read throughout all of Dostoevsky. But Dimitri is this character whose fate hangs in the balance with respect to these fatal differences. And he's really connected to the sort of story of Shoshima in that same way and his brother. Yeah. Yeah. It was his older brother who died. I think Dimitri is really attuned to that, that hairbreadth difference between falling and rising because part of what he can't get over is his guilt that he may have killed Grigory when in fact he didn't, while at the same time he intends to kill his father. And then of course we have the question of whether he actually has done that or not. He claims he did not do it. He, he, he said, he admits, yes, I said many times I wanted to kill my father and I did it. I intended to do it, but I did not do it. So there's that interesting difference between intent and, and will. And then finally the action that comes about because of it. And he seems to be 
to be playing along with that quite a bit. The other thing that fascinates me in terms of him as a character here being saved or blown by, by a hair's breadth is this issue of the money. So I'm going to go ahead and go into this really briefly. Everybody has this question. He, he spends the whole first part of this going around trying to scrape up some money. And then all of a sudden, it's never, it doesn't get explained in the middle of the narrative. He just winds up with a bunch of money. He's got, he suddenly got a bunch of money. And the envelope that his father had full of money for Grushenka has been torn open and the money's been taken. So, of course, the suspicion falls on him. His claim, though, however, is this, that he's done something that he's even more ashamed of than he would have been if he had killed his father and taken the money, which is that a while back, he had been given some money by Katerina, his, his fiance, and told to take it, make sure it gets delivered to Moscow, somebody in Moscow. Instead of doing that, he just took it for himself. Terrible thing to do. But what's, what he thinks is extremely terrible is the fact that he claimed it was 3,000 rubles, which is a lot of money in the, this context, a lot of money. He had claimed that he had spent all 3,000 on a, essentially a previous bender. He just blown it all on this weekend with Grushenka and a bunch of other people. He buys tons and tons of champagne. They have a big party that lasts for a couple of days. And so everybody thinks he's just blown all this money. As it turns out, at least what he claims is, he only spent half of it and he kept, he reserved half of it and kept it in his little, what he calls an amulet, but it's really just like a little rag around his neck. And he forgot about this as he was going through the streets or, or he just didn't want to touch it. And then at the end, he realizes, oh, I've got this money. I'm just going to, I'm just going to use it. And so that's what he claims. He, he had had this other 1500 rubles and that's how he spent it this time. That's where he got all this money. But the, the key there is that he's, ash he's ashamed of this more than anything else. The fact that he split the money in half because it shows to him that he was being calculating more than anything else, right? He knows that he's sort of a base person and he's impulsive and he does all those things. He can live with that to an extent. What he can't live with is the fact that he had the chance to make things like partially right with Katerina by giving her back half the money. And he didn't, he hid it away until such a time as he would need it. And it's, it's, it's again, it's kind of, a, kind of a funny scene. He's being interrogated by the police and the police are all like, I don't, I don't see the problem here. You just, you, you were being smart. You kept it away, right? You kept half of it. And he's like, no, this is like the worst thing that I've done here is to, is to, to have kept this money when I said I spent it. So we definitely are getting some sense of how he operates as a character. And again, this is the fatal difference that the inspectors say. There is some difference, I grant you, the prosecutor smiled coldly, but still it's strange that you see it as such a fatal difference. And Dostoevsky really is pressing a lot on that locution, right? This, what do we consider a fatal difference between people or between acts or with moral luck involved? The literal fatal difference of Grigory living and Fyodor dying in the same intended, same style act. And at this point, we're led to believe the same kind of blow by the same weapon. And so I just love that this is brought up. And we see this in, in sort of a lot of the characters that really get the light shined on them throughout the novel. What do they take to be the fatal difference between one kind of self they could be and another? So I thought that was great. And he he's someone who, as you said before, has many of the same impulses as Alyosha does. He has this really an impulsive generosity, an impulsive affection, an impulsive desire to please people. Unlike Alyosha, who at, to this point has focused that around one person and is now having to learn to give that to other people, Dimitri's problem seems to be that he doesn't really have any focus at all. He focuses on Grushenka to some extent, but even that is a very diffuse focus, if you will, in the way that he in the way that he focuses on her, because his his sort of gestures are all over the place. His he has this wild impulses, and he can't channel it into a, a concerted effort to woo her as he could do to try to win her sort of the normal way, right? To send her lots of presents, do all these sorts of things. Instead, they kind of go all over the place. It just sort of springs out of every orifice of his, these impulses. And he, he looks at, you know, how Grushenka sees him obviously in some way as similar to his father. And he's, 
you know, demoralized and debased at how similar he is to his father. And he wonders, is a difference of degree or a difference of kind? Part of the thing about the money is that it perhaps makes him on the same level as his father. It makes him so base that he would boast to everyone, here I am doing, going to the hills, spending all of my money, all 3,000 rubles, but really he's lied and kept some. This is analogous to, and perhaps a difference or perhaps a fatal difference between how Fyodor has kept some money away. And when yes. he dies, that money will help somebody get this sort of woodland or this space that's you know somewhat idyllic where perhaps Dmitry and Grushenko will run to the end of the world and live together, either sell that space or whatever. There's an analogy there with keeping money hidden away and not telling a single soul about it. With Fyodor, it's like a huge inheritance that he's sort of secreted away in some sense. And with Dmitri, it's this money around his neck. And it's around the neck where the lifeblood is, right? Where you might get strangled and die. That's another connection or, too. Or you might have a, a, mill, a millstone tied around it. Uh, exactly. Which a, a pestle, by the way, is a sort of millstone in another <laughs> sense, which is what he, he knocks Grigory with. Yes. There's all sorts of wonderful connections here. I want to turn this for a, just a moment to one more really fascinating section to me. The narrator is telling us a little bit about how he feels toward Grushenka. And he goes off in this very interesting tangent, thinking about what it means to be a jealous person, because his contention is that Dmitri is, in fact, a truly jealous person. So I'm just going to read a little bit. Jealousy. Othello is not jealous. He is trustful, Pushkin observed. And this one observation already testifies to the remarkable depth of our great poet's mind. He's got to get in that pro-Russia bit right there. Othello's soul is simply shattered and his whole worldview clouded because his ideal is destroyed. Othello will not hide, spy, peep. He is trustful. On the contrary, he has to be led, prompted, roused with great effort to make him even think of betrayal. A truly jealous man is not like that. It is impossible to imagine all the shame and moral degradation a jealous man can tolerate without the least remorse. And it is not that they are all trite and dirty souls. On the contrary, it is possible to have a lofty heart, to love purely, to be full of self-sacrifice, and at the same time, to hide under tables, to bribe the meanest people, and live with the nastiest filth of spying and eavesdropping. Othello could in no way be reconciled with betrayal. Not that he could not forgive, but he could not be reconciled, though his soul was gentle and innocent as a babe's. Not so the truly jealous man. It is hard to imagine what some jealous men can tolerate and be reconciled to, and what they can forgive. Jealous men forgive sooner than anyone else, and all women know it. The jealous man, having first made a terrible scene, of course, can and will very promptly forgive, for example, a nearly proven betrayal. The embraces and kisses he has seen himself, if, for example, at the same time, he can somehow be convinced that this was the last time and that his rival will disappear from that moment on, that he will go to the end of the earth, or that he himself will take her away somewhere to some place where this terrible rival will never come. Of course, the reconciliation will only last an hour, because even if the rival has indeed disappeared, tomorrow he will invent another, a new one, and become jealous of this new one. And that certainly seems to describe Dmitri. Again, taking it back to what you were talking about before with Grushenka, there's that sense of shame and the almost masochistic desire to punish oneself for one's for one's desire and in the pursuit of that to be punished and there's also a sense of dimitri being an extremely forgiving lover of grushenka right he's always you know please baby take me back um, <laughs> and um, no matter what she does to him right no matter how badly she treats him and that's always hovering around. And he says that it's very poignant when Grushenka's going away to meet her old lover. She says to Alyosha, tell your brother, I loved him if only for an hour. And then she says that to him, to Dmitri again, when he sees her, I told Alyosha to tell you, I loved you only for an hour. And he, he clings to that and he has that hope, right? He thinks that that's the most wonderful thing he could have heard. And then it turns out, right, that this, this new lover is really, or this old lover is really an idiot and, and not very interesting and Grushenka doesn't really want to be with him anymore. And so now he has this new, you know, spring of hope inside of him for himself. He really does. He has that, the compulsions of a jealous man, 
the ability to be within the space of a few minutes, the most vindictive and petty person, and then the most ebullient and kind and gracious person, right? The sort of swinging back and forth, depending on the favor of the person that he's interested in. Yeah, I wonder what you make with all of that in mind of this passage, sort of public final interaction between them before Dimitri is taken away. First, she says, farewell, guiltless man who have been your own ruin. Her lips trembled, tears flowed from her eyes. And he says, forgive me, Grusha, for my love that I've ruined you too with my love. Does that fit this jealousy dynamic and this sort of always going to be one more thing? Do you think this is like a public display? Like, is it, are they filming The Bachelor or is like The Bachelor cameras off and they're like really saying it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I do think that there's absolutely an element of, of perf- kind of performance there in, in what he's, what they're doing together as he's being, as he's being taken away. This need at the very last to be forgiven for something, which is an interesting dynamic because Grushenka, we see in the Onion chapter, she works her way towards thinking that she can forgive her former lover for having left her and married another woman. But when it comes down to it, when she actually meets up with him, what she finds out is he's come to forgive her, her for reasons unknown, not being good enough for him. I don't know, really. And it's, it's this great insult. And she takes it as a great insult. And I think probably she rightly should. <laughs> he's kind of a, a jerk about it, obviously. But, but, but it's interesting that she is much more willing to think about forgiving him than she is to think about being forgiven. Meanwhile, Dimitri, Dimitri wants to be forgiven. He, he wants to, he's, he's sort of like Martin Luther. He wants to sin boldly so that grace may abound more, right? He wants to, he wants to be forgiven. And so there's a sort of an appropriateness in their relationship. If she's going to learn to be the forgiving one, and he's ready and willing and able to accept that forgiveness, you know, and, and sort of craves it. There, there's a sort of, a, there's an appropriateness there to it. Anything else to add before we wrap up? Those are some lines to think of whoever you are. If you're in a monogamous relationship, forgive me that I've ruined you with my love. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Uh, That's real. That's real life right there. I know. And I think Dostoevsky's pointing to that, right? You know, with his, um, there's some fabled stories about, you know, his failed marriage and then his successful second marriage um, where he told his future second wife, who was his typist, a story sort of about a terrible, lonely man. And as she's typing it, she realizes it's about him. And he's trying trying in this sort of Dimitri way to like ask for forgiveness right away and (laughs) ask her to love him. It's kind of sweet, but it's heartrending in this you will you will be the ruin of the person you choose (laughs) (laughs) but yeah then we await the trial the eventual trial and the eventual conviction or acquittal of dimitri upon which rests a lot metaphysically the ultimate savability or something of human desire karamazovian root of human want what saves it or what doesn't what is ultimately in our terrestrial life, which is paradise, what part of it, in fact, does need to be excluded? Is there a sort of hell to it? And who embodies that? I think those are questions that allegorically play out in, you know, who's guilty and who's innocent. And, you know, Dimitri here shows that he's, he'd rather be guilty of guilt than guilty of shame. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe it's the other way around, but there's sort of a play on that at the end, too. We'll Stay tuned to- for the exciting yeah. conclusion. Yes, we're barreling into it. Uh, the The boys will be back in town for part four. Uh, Ivan's going to come back. The, the young boys are going to come back. Alyosha's going to hang out with them a little bit more. And uh, so we'll see. We'll wrap everything up. We'll talk about um, final thoughts about the book. And then we'll push forward uh, into what's coming next with the pod. As always, you can follow us on social media on Twitter at, uh, at the readers Karamazov. You can follow us now on Facebook. You're officially on Facebook at facebook.com slash the readers Karamazov. And uh, you can find our pod at our website, the readers Karamazov.podbean.com. You can f- find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple podcasts. You can find us on Google podcasts. 
And as always, we want to remind you, you are welcome to go throw away all 3,000 of your rubles to sponsor <laughs> us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We've recorded one episode there. Um, there might be, there are going to be some occasional writings that go up there when we get the chance. We are also going to be starting a sub pod about movies that is going to go up only for Patreon sponsors. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for those things, friends. You don't want to miss it. That's it for tonight. We'll see you next time. We'll hopefully still be all be alive at that point. And uh, until then, stay safe and we'll have cat keyboard play us out meow